I'd like to have you repeat something after me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Uh, As we begin this time of study in your word again. As we recognize challenge that is set before your apostle, your servant Paul. Recognizing, Lord, that Paul was a man just like us, and yet filled with the Spirit of God, just like so many of us. And we pray that we will learn from his example, that we will gain information, yes, Lord, and knowledge, but beyond that, we always ask for revelation, which is heart level. We don't just want to take stuff home in our heads today, we want it to get into the heart. And we do pray, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 23. This is one of those interesting stories. And yet you have to ask the question, why did God see fit to include this one? John tells us at the end of his gospel, there were so many things that Jesus did and taught that all the libraries and all the books and all the world wouldn't contain them. There are so many things that we know must have taken place in the early church, in history, and yet the Lord doesn't include those in Scripture. He is intentional. And I've told you before, every word of every verse of every chapter of every book in this collection, in this 66-book library, is here on purpose. God is intentional. He could have left out anything, could have put in anything he desired. And he desired to leave in the story that's before us this morning. Let's take a look at it and see if we can find out why God has it here. Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you think to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. (laughs) For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Watch your mouth. It was a phrase for me as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s we heard all the time from taller folk. Watch your mouth. A warning. Anytime one of us kids crossed the line, watch your mouth. I never understood that phrase. My eyes sit about two inches above my mouth on the same face. Have you ever tried to? You'd have to walk around with a mirror like all day long. Watch your mouth, son. Watch your mouth, kid. Watch your mouth. See, my generation learned something. If you didn't watch your mouth, you were bound to end up sitting on a stool sucking a bar of soap. Yeah, we can't do that today. It's called child abuse. But it's one of my favorite scenes out of one of my favorite movies, A Christmas Story, because my brother and I were Ralphie and Randy. I was Randy. Everything worked. I got everything I wanted every Christmas. Nothing ever worked for Ron. But that's another story for another time. Young Ralphie Parker, you may recall the scene if you've seen the movie. He was busted for blurting out, quote, the queen mother of dirty words. He sat in his bathroom with a big red block of soap sticking out of his mouth. And the author narrator Gene Shepard said the following, Over the years, I got to be quite a connoisseur of soap. Though my personal preference was for Lux, I found that palm olive had a nice piquant after dinner flavor, heavy but with a touch of mellow smoothness. Life Boy, on the other hand, yuck. Proverbs 18, verse 6 tells us, A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Proverbs 17, 28, which was a quotable one I used all the time in youth ministry for years, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. 
When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Now, Paul was no fool. Paul is among the most brilliant, articulate, educated, intelligent men in the Bible. If there was anyone who was well-versed on the stuff of Scripture, well-trained in the practice of his faith, even prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? A Jew among Jews. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He had it all together. He even said so. Verse 1 says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Really? On the road to Damascus, Paul? A perfectly good conscience while you stood there watching them stone Stephen to death, Paul? Paul starts out by calling the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, brethren. We mentioned on Wednesday night, brethren is Adelphos in the Greek. He doesn't call them pateros, which is fathers. And it would be only appropriate, if you're a Jew standing before the Sanhedrin, you would call them fathers. You would not call them brethren as though you were on an equal plane with your Jewish rulers. No. Fathers. Paul calls them brethren, and it makes many believe that this was some other hints that Paul himself was perhaps once on the Sanhedrin. If not on the Sanhedrin, was certainly on his way to becoming one of them. And so Paul says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this very day. You know what that tells us? Your conscience may be perfectly good, but that doesn't mean you're perfectly right. Your conscience, sorry Jiminy Cricket, is not a good guide. Your conscience can give you indication of right and wrong, can poke you and prod you perhaps in the right direction, but your conscience is not a good guide. You can be absolutely sincere and absolutely wrong at the same time. And Paul was completely sincere. He had a perfectly good conscience. His integrity was intact on the road to Damascus about to persecute Christians because as far as he knew, as far as he understood, what he was doing was godly and right. His conscience, Jesus tells us, had been poking and prodding him anyway. And he was ignoring that aspect. And so he was doing the wrong thing for all the right reasons. My friends, please understand, sincerity is not enough. Sincerity does not equal salvation. No one's going to stand before God and say, well, I I sincerely didn't believe you were real. It's not going to wash, gang. Paul wasn't sinless. He was just sincere. His deeds coincided with his faith, his, his actions with his beliefs. And so he could go to Damascus to arrest Christians. He could stand and watch Stephen being stoned to death because you know what? He was acting on what he knew and what he thought he believed to be true. Perfectly good conscience. Perfectly wrong. John Corson says, your conscience is okay for goading. It's just lousy for guiding. Just remember that. Externally, Paul was an impeccable Pharisee. Internally, Paul knew he had some issues. He confessed as much. In Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. We don't know what all Paul's sins were. We know this much. He coveted. I don't know what he coveted. Probably, knowing Paul, position and prestige and power. And then he ran into Jesus on that road to Damascus. And and truly it changed everything. He discovered in Jesus Christ what so many of us discover. And please get this, both Christians and non-Christians alike, please understand. What we discover in Jesus is grace and how much we need it. And I continue to discover that every day. I'm coming up now, well, I'm 41 years walking with the Lord. 41 years a believer in Jesus Christ. And every year I recognize my need for grace is more 
and more. It does not decrease. It increases. The more I know Jesus, the more I need His grace. John wrote as much in John 1.16. He said, For of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. I love that verse. I refer myself to that verse often. Grace upon grace, Rick. So when I use up the first offering of grace, there's more. And when I use that up, there's more still. It is grace upon grace. The indication in the language is it's ongoing grace of God to cover us when we sin, when we fail, when we forsake. Grace upon grace. How many times do you open your mouth and find yourself needing grace upon grace? How often does your mouth get you into trouble? Now, granted, some more than others. Some are more talkative. And the more words coming out, the more chances you're going to blow it. You quiet people, you're getting off a little easier than the rest of us. You introverts, keeping it all to yourself. But God knows what's on your hearts. (laughs) Well, Paul opens his mouth, declaring his integrity before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest orders a hit. Smack! Paul takes it on the chin. The high priest Ananias, verse 2, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And I think this all happened in a lip-splitting second. Very quickly. We read these things and can lose you know, the, the drama of what just took place. Paul stands up and says, Hey, brothers, I, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience. Smack! How would you act? How would you respond in the moment of being struck in the mouth for just declaring your innocence, which he was innocent? Of all the charges of what they were trumping up before him, what they were trying to do, he was innocent. And he gets smacked in the mouth. Now, before we get to Paul's response, I want you to think about this high priest, this Ananias. I'm going to give you four things to outline this for you note takers. And the first thing is the corruption of a priest. The corruption of a priest. This is not the same as the high priest in the trials of Jesus. That was Annas and his son Caiaphas. This is now an Ananias. The only other Ananiases we know in Scripture are the Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, lied to the Lord and dropped dead. And the Ananias who laid his hands on the shoulders of Paul and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. So we got one Ananias that's a liar, another Ananias who lays his hands gently on Paul and calls him brother, and a third Ananias here who is a greedy, awful, mean-spirited, selfish high priest. The trials of Jesus had taken place 27 years earlier. This was a recent high priest. This high priest is Ananias, the son of Nedebaeus. This Ananias was put into place, put into power, and note these dates, they're important, in A.D. 47. Herod of Chalcis, who was Herod Agrippa's brother, put him into place. So he's like a government hack. All right, This Ananias is, is stuck in there by Rome, not because he you know, rises to the office in, among the Levites in the Aaronic uh, priesthood. He's put there by Rome. And he ruled as high priest for the maximum length History tells us was about 12 years. Between 11 and 12 years. So AD 47 reigned for 11 or 12 years. And now it's 60, it's 60 AD. 60 AD. In six years, Ananias will be dead. At the hands of his own people. You see, Josephus called him a disgrace to the holy office. A greedy, self-serving man who, quote, seized for himself the tithes that should have gone to the common priests. He was ripped in a parody of Psalm 24. You Bible students know Psalm 24. It's the lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king may come in. David wrote that psalm. Well, a parody was written around the days of Ananias, and it went this way. Lift up your heads, O gates, and let Yohanan enter in and fill his stomach with the divine sacrifices. Wait, Yohanan? Or Ananias. Yohanan in Hebrew is Ananias spelled backwards. 
So what they are showing in this parody is they're making fun of Ananias and saying he's, he's a self-serving, greedy, stomach-filling man. And they twist the name around backwards just to express how twisted he really was. The Jews hated him. The Jewish nationalists especially despised him. But even after he was deposed from office, he had such wealth that he had amazing influence there in Judea. Until the Jewish Rome with war, or the Jewish war with Rome broke out. When the Jewish war broke out, the revolt against Rome in AD 66, Ananias, who was put in place, remember, by the government, he fled for his life. He was hiding in an aqueduct in Jerusalem when some of the Jews found him, dragged him out, and summarily executed him on the spot. His own people. So that's who we're talking about, who ordered the hit on Paul. When Paul says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience, this Ananias, who did not have a perfectly good conscience, raises his hand and smack right across Paul's face there in front of the Sanhedrin. Again, how would you respond? Number two, second thing to note, the comeback of Paul. The comeback of Paul. Look at verse 3. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed walls. I like that. I'm going to start using that. (laughs) Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Paul knew the law. Inside and out, backwards and forwards, he knew the law. He knew that it was absolutely unlawful for any Jew to be struck prior to having a fair hearing. Prior to being shown the guilt, you were not allowed to strike another Jew. And so this high priest immediately violates the law. No wonder Paul is upset. The Jewish law said, called for, in the event that someone's guilty, 40 lashes. Let me read this to you. Back in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge decides their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. The judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more. So that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. You can, you can whip them. This is in Jewish law. This was prescribed by God, remember, as punishment for a guilty sentence. That depending on the sentence, you could whip a man up to 40 times. Now, there are many today who would say, well, that's just abusive. That's why I won't believe in that Bible or that God. He's just too abusive. Well, what if the person who was uh, found guilty had just beaten up your child? What if they had just robbed you of everything that you have? What if they had hurt one of your loved ones? I mean, come on. Where's the justice? God is a God of love and mercy and justice. And you need to understand something about the beatings. The 40 lashes was maximum sentence. Rome didn't have any maximum sentence. They would just beat until the person died. Or until they were close to death. Jewish law said maximum 40 times, and you need to know this as well, it was with a whip. It was not with the flagellum that Rome created. The flagellum. That's that cat of nine tails with the bone and and pieces of metal and strips of wire and stuff stuff stuck in the end so that when they whipped the back of the person and dragged it across their back, it would tear the back up. God said, that's not how we're going to do it. In fact, in Israel, they would do 13 lashes on one shoulder, 13 lashes on the other shoulder, and 13 right up the middle if they were going to do all 40 simply to protect against that person having their back completely torn up. 13, 13, and 13 is 39. That's because the Jews were afraid to do 40. They always did the 39 lashes just in case somebody miscounted. You know, you're there lashing and there's some idiot in the side. You're like 11, 12, some guy goes 15, 17, what, what? You've done it, you know. Maybe not the whipping part. But they were so intent on keeping the law 
It was 39 lashes, just in case we miscounted by one so we don't go over 40. There's mercy there. The idea, the Lord says, is so that your brother is not degraded in your eyes. Punishment, but it's not about shame. It's not about disgrace. It's not about tearing someone up and sending them off crippled for life because their back is so shredded. There's mercy even in the punishment. But that's the Jewish law. Well, here's Paul. And he's struck before a single piece of evidence has been brought to this trial, this ad hoc trial. Struck in the face. Again, how would you respond? Paul comes back. How dare you violate the law? And again, I love it. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. What does he mean? The whitewashed wall. A lot of people think, and kind of the first place my mind went in reading that was corruption. That he's talking about how corrupt this high priest was, and it was an act of corruption, and so he's corrupt. Why corruption? Because of the phrase whitewashed tombs. You whitewash. See, the idea behind a whitewashed tomb in Israel was so that you wouldn't happen upon a tomb, touch it, sit down by it to have your lunch. Maybe you're on your way to Jerusalem. And you're going up for one of the feasts. And you've gone through preparation and and you want to go there and enjoy the feast. And all of a sudden on the way there you sit down to have a turkey sandwich. And as you sit down you realize you're sitting on a tomb. Unclean! Now you've got to go through the purification process to get all straightened out before you can enjoy the the, the feast. So what they did was they painted the tombs white. So all over Israel, if you came across a tomb, you would see it at a distance and you could make your way around it and not become unclean by touching dead things or a tomb where a dead body might be lying. Whitewashed tombs. That's what Jesus meant intentionally when he said to the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside... You appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now Paul could very easily be quoting Jesus when he says, you whitewashed wall. Except he says whitewashed wall, he does not say whitewashed tomb. So I don't believe he is quoting Jesus. I think Paul's saying something else altogether. What? What's he saying? I'll tell you in just a minute. Look at verse 4. But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The confession, number three, the confession of Paul. Now, Paul has often been compared to Jesus. In this scenario, in this particular story, Paul is struck and he blurts out whitewashed wall. Jesus is struck and remains silent. Paul in his sin nature and Jesus perfect. And I think it's an unfair comparison. Now Jesus was struck on the mouth. Make no mistake about it. Mark fourteen sixty five. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. The prophet Isaiah told us how that would go down, saying, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was struck, maintained. Slapped across the face multiple times. Didn't say a word. Peter, who was a witness of this, would later write in 1 Peter 2.21, You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. But while suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself To him who judges righteously. And yeah, we look at that example of Jesus maintaining his composure, his silence, even in the face of being slapped in the face. And we think, I would love to be that way. Some commentators jump on this and they say, Paul's losing it. Paul's angry and his anger blurts out. But I'm going to ask one more time, how would you react 
to the sudden unexpected strike on the mouth. Was Paul unchristlike in his response? See, what I see in Paul is a little different. I see righteous indignation. I see a righteous anger. He even goes straight to the law, calls out the law, and he's right. What was done to him there in that chamber was inappropriate, was unlawful. And he was right to call it out. But note how quickly when he realizes it was the high priest that he called the whitewashed wall, how quickly he spins around and apologizes. I, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul said. Oy vey, I didn't know. It was him. How could I have known? And I, for one, believe Paul. There are those commentators who say, no, Paul knew what he was doing and he's just playing on him, you know. But no, I don't think Paul knew that this was the high priest. But here's a fair question. How in the world could Paul not know this was the high priest? Everybody knew who the high priest was. Everybody. How could you not know, Paul? especially Paul? Jew among Jews. Well, some suggest that Ananias wasn't wearing his high priestly robes. And that's a fair suggestion. This was, after all, a Roman ad hoc meeting. The commander of the Romans called in the Sanhedrin to to this quick meeting the the morning after this uproar in Jerusalem and pulls Paul in front of him. So it wasn't a scheduled meeting, it wasn't a planned meeting. Perhaps Ananias just showed up in his linen garb like the rest of the priests and so you couldn't tell him apart from the others. That's one suggestion. Another suggestion is that Paul was just out of town too much. You know, traveling in his missionary journeys and even when he was home he was primarily up in Antioch so he, he wouldn't have known me. He was just kind of out of touch. Wasn't aware that this was the high priest. He hadn't picked up his recent copy of the Jerusalem Post and so he wasn't certain who this was. Perhaps. One interesting suggestion is that Paul literally couldn't see him. Some of you remember in his second missionary journey, Paul got very sick. Got a high spiking fever there in Galatia. Was unable even for several weeks, perhaps months, to get back to his mission. Was sidetracked by it. And there are many who suggest, and even some of Paul's own writings hint at this, that maybe that fever caused a blindness in Paul, or a semi-blindness with runny, dripping eyes that would affect him the rest of his life. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. To the churches, he said, I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Well, why would they have to do that if, unless he had become blinded or had lost his vision? Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, he, he writes, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Kind of like many of you and myself included who on our home screens and our computers, we've amped up the, the font size a bit. I know the day is coming when it's going to be like one letter on the screen. Hey. <laughs> so perhaps it was a blindness issue that Paul always had this running. I remember several years ago, a couple of years back, I had some allergies and my eyes were just freaking out and I could not see. It was very frustrating. And some think that that was the thorn in the flesh that Paul complained of. Thorn in the flesh? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about, I had this thorn in the flesh and I prayed. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Whatever this thorn in the flesh was, whether it was blindness or some other problem, he's saying, God, please take this away. It's hampering my ministry. It's hampering my ability to do what I need to do. So I don't know what I did to my wrist. I really don't. It just about six, five, six weeks ago started hurting. And it started hurting bad. In fact, I've got the brace on right now because that's about the only time it's not hurting. If I take the brace off, it starts hurting immediately. I'll use my wrist inadvertently and, and just like... Hot, hot as fire, poker hot pain shoots up my wrist. So I've been to the doctor, had the MRI, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But I was talking to Cheryl about it last night and I said, you know, I don't, 
what I want to do is go to the doctor and him say, look, just wear the wrist brace for a few more weeks and you'll be fine. It'll, it'll get back to normal. Great. That's what I'm praying for. What I don't want is what my wife went through, which was wrist surgery with a cast. And I said to Cheryl last night, how in the world am I going to do my Bible study? How am I, how am I going to type up my notes for, for teaching if I got my hand in a cast? And Cheryl smiled at me and said, well, maybe you're just going to have to trust the Lord a little more. <laughs> like five minutes later, I'm sitting in the bathroom with a bar of soap in my mouth. <laughs> Paul said that the Lord responded to his issue, whether it be his eyes or something else, by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If the thorn in Paul's flesh was an eye issue, it would make sense. And by the way, there's another little hint right here at the beginning of the chapter. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul was doing what? Looking intently. He's looking intently at the council. The word in the Greek is atenizo, and it means to stare at or to stare through, as though you're trying to make something out. And it is entirely possible, Paul is staring at the council, and he can't make out one face from another. Because of this blindness issue. And so he's completely right when he says, I I don't know who, who, I don't know who the high priest was. Couldn't see. But I want to suggest a fourth possibility. That Paul, in fact, did know who Ananias was, but did not know he was the high priest currently. What do you mean? He knew Ananias had already been deposed. Think back to the dates that I gave you earlier. I said that he was set up as high priest in A.D. 47. He held the office for a maximum of 12 years. That would be what? A.D. what? 59. This is A.D. 60. So it doesn't line up. Why is Ananias standing there as high priest if this is A.D. 60 and he was deposed in A.D. 59? Well, we got our dates wrong. No, I don't think so. It's because after Ananias was deposed, they set up another high priest named Jonathan. Jonathan. Governor Felix had Jonathan executed within the first year of his high priesthood. And they had no high priest for a time. Ananias had to slide back in temporarily as the high priest. And so Paul's standing there and goes, I didn't realize he still was the high priest. But if he knew that Ananias had been deposed, well, that kind of changes why Paul called him a whitewashed wall. What do you mean? Well, we already talked about the whitewashed tomb indicates corruption. What is a whitewashed wall? What does that phrase imply or indicate? You whitewashed wall! Gang, it's not corruption, it's crumbling. Crumbling. The expression was used to describe someone or something that was weakened and or falling apart. If Paul knew that Ananias had been deposed then he may have been very specifically calling him a whitewashed wall. You are crumbling. You're already out of power. You're falling apart, man. You whitewashed wall. F.F. Bruce says the metaphor suggests a tottering wall whose precarious condition has been disguised by a generous coat of whitewash. Or in Cheryl's, in my case, spackle. (laughs) Corey's first bedroom. Cheryl and I, the first house we bought was a 40-year-old fixer-upper. And the place, it was, in, it was in decent shape, it was clean, but it was a 19, late, late 1960s house. And so, boy, the decor, shag, carpets, velvet, wallpaper, uh, harvest gold appliances. I mean, the thing was straight out of the late 60s, early 70s. So we went about trying to fix it up and everything. In Corey's bedroom of that first house, he was young, four or five years old at the time. And in his bedroom, we went in to take the wallpaper off because it was this thick, velvety, hideous, awful stuff that I think is coming back in fashion right now. But it was, it was terrible. So we start tearing wallpaper off. This wallpaper had been there for over 40 years. They never painted the wall behind it. They didn't even apply anything to it. They just put the wallpaper on the wall board. 
after 40 years, we are ripping chunks of wall. You remember this? Ripping chunks of wall out of our son's bedroom. And because I'm such a whiz when it comes to fixing up homes, we just started a spackle. I mean, there are holes in the wall this big. We're like, spackle, 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 spackle. Let it dry. Spackle on the inside. Let it dry. Spackle some more. If you leaned against those walls, you'd go right through the house. I don't know how long it took the people who bought the house from us to figure that out. You whitewashed wall? That whole room was disguised as it looked like it had walls. No, it was just spackle. (laughs) So it's possible that Paul was fully aware that Ananias had been deposed and that his influence was crumbling. He was just unaware that Ananias was back in position as temporary high priest. Any way you cut this, any way you look at it, Paul really didn't know Ananias was in the position of high priest, even as a stand-in. And when he gets slapped in the face, yes, he reacts with that righteous indignation. He was right to react, quoting the law. He probably could have done it without the whitewashed wall comment. But look at Paul's heart. He immediately confesses. He immediately turns it back on himself. He confesses what he recognizes as his own verbal impudence. He even quotes Deuteronomy, Exodus 22 verse 28, which reads, You shall not curse God, nor shall you curse any ruler of your people. Paul said, You know, you're right. My bad. I shouldn't have said this. My fault. Paul, before the Sanhedrin, confesses, and this is to the group who could hand him back to Rome and say, kill him, and here's why. That says something about Paul's heart. Let me just ask you this question. Husbands, bros, how quick are you to apologize to your wife when words come out of your mouth that shouldn't come out of your mouth? How long does it take you to turn around and recognize your sin in the face of your wife and saying something making some statement, maybe some foul language, whatever blurts out of your mouth, you're spackling a wall and you get it all over yourself. And you, you know, How quick are you to turn to your wife and say, I'm in the wrong, I'm sorry. Wives, sister, how are you at being submissive to your husband when every natural fiber of your being says, fight back, he's being a jerk. Maybe he is. How's your mouth in those times? Teenagers. Teenagers. How are you in response to a parent who might even be wrong? How do you react when your mom or dad tells you to do something or punishes you in a certain way or get on your case and all of a sudden you find yourself speaking words and you know you're in the right based on your vast years of experience. You know they're wrong. How's your mouth? Do you watch your mouth? This is one of those stories that I'm convinced is in Scripture to help us with this very definite issue among all people. I don't care how holy you are. Paul's about as holy as it gets among human people and yet still blurts out, still fires off, still gets angry and lets his mouth go before he recognizes who he's talking to. And James says in James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Let's take it a step further. Listen to what James says in James chapter 3. I'll just read this to you this morning. James chapter 3, verse 5. He says, The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a very world, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. This is serious business. He says, for every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea, 
is tamed and has been tamed by humanity, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of a deadly poison. For with it, and see if this sounds familiar to any of you, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Watch your mouth. I've had multiple conversations over the years with people who have said, I would love to stop cussing. I just can't seem to. I never cuss during worship on a Sunday morning. But I'm out at work on Monday and it just comes in like a flood. It's what I hear all day long. And I have trouble with that. I would love to clean up my language. I've talked to those who say, I just wish I could learn how to hold my tongue. Not to blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. Not to to jump in there and poison conversations because I just can't control my tongue. There are a couple of very encouraging applications right in the story this morning that I think can help if if you happen to be in this position. I know most of us are not. (laughs) If you happen to be in this position and you wonder, how can I better control my mouth? How can I watch my mouth? Listen up. Number four is the condition of the people of Jesus. The condition of the people of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to understand, there are massive, massive benefits to giving your life to Jesus. The greatest benefit, of course, is salvation, eternal life, living with God forever. But there are benefits that are constant among us as followers of Jesus Christ. We come into a new condition. We've talked about this in the book of Acts. A new breed of people, born again, into a new kind of life, a new way to live. We are in a new condition. And in this condition, take a language lesson from the Apostle Paul. The two things that we can draw out of this that make such a difference in our verbiage Number one, we wash our mouths with the pure soap of confession. Paul shows us right here, the very first thing he does when he realizes his error is he confesses immediately. He doesn't wait, he doesn't allow his pride to catch up with his mouth. He confesses instantaneously. And confession is better than life, boy. It is a cleansing agent. And it doesn't leave that awful aftertaste. You know that soap used to leave? Those of you who experience such things, such abuse as children. Confession is a cleansing agent. What do you mean? 1 John 1, verse 9. John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the wonderful thing about being in the condition of a follower of Jesus is now you have the right to confess any time. You can confess anything. Why? Because you've already been forgiven. Because as far as God's concerned, Jesus already took the lashes, already took the stripes, already took the final punishment for the sins that would normally be yours. He took them. You can confess. It is a marvelous thing that we have, having been washed, having been forgiven. We've got nothing to hide. Christian brothers and sisters, please hear that. Because far too many Christians spend an awful lot of time hiding stuff. And you know what it does? It makes you ashamed. You wear it. I wear it. We walk around with this hidden sin in our life. It's like, I just don't, don't want anybody ever to know this. And the longer you hold on to that garbage, that foul stuff, the longer you keep it, the heavier it gets... And God says, confess. Get it out. I've already forgiven you. I'm not going to cast you out. I'm not going to drive you out. I don't want you walking off with your head all hung low ashamed. And I'll tell you what, when people come forward on a Sunday morning, just by example, and it's not the only place you can confess, but when people come up and they confess and they let go of the sin, they don't walk out of here like, oh, now everybody knows. And now I just feel worse. Confession is cleansing. 
God promises us. And by the way, it's only, it's only cleansing because there's forgiveness. Confession only tastes bad where there's no forgiveness. If you're in a position where you know you're going to get hammered if you confess, if you tell the truth about what you're hanging on to, well, of course you wouldn't. But God says, hey, I've already forgiven you. You already have my grace upon grace. Now confess so you can be free of this stuff too. You don't have to carry that around anymore. How marvelous, how cleansing, how wonderful is that? Confession is a cleansing agent. And Paul would later write to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will be giving grace, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And I think, that's what I want. That's really how I want to be. I I don't want unwholesome words to proceed from my mouth. Guess what? They still do. Oh, not on a Sunday morning. I'm very careful as to what I allow in my notes. Hey, I'm just being honest, and I hope you can be too. We say things, we speak things, we ought not be speaking. We use language, we wish, the moment it comes flying out of our mouths, we wish that we hadn't just used. We say things to our spouses, to our children, to our parents, that we shouldn't have said, and we know even as we're saying it, And so I am among you as one who says, I wish that I could be Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That would be awesome. But God knows as long as we're in this flesh, we have a sin nature and we're going to blurt. And we're going to say things we wish we hadn't. And so the first thing we have in the condition of being in Jesus with all the forgiveness and redemption that comes from Jesus is we have the right to confess and be free. And that's marvelous. But we can go one better than confession. See, the language lesson from Paul is we can, as Jesus' people, confess. But take a language lesson from Jesus. You see, Jesus shows us another time when He was struck on the mouth and did not stay silent. It's in John chapter 18. You can turn there or just listen. John chapter 18, verse 19. Which tells us the high priest, and this would be Annas at that time, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to all the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And in a very similar move, Verse 22 says, when he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus. Slapped him across the mouth, just as what had happened to Paul, or what would later happen to Paul. Saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? So gang, we have parallel stories here. And Jesus did not remain silent when he was struck. Listen to what he said. If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? (laughs) Look at the difference. Paul is struck. (laughs) You whitewashed wall! How dare you violate the law! And out it comes. Jesus is struck. (laughs) What did you do that for? If I have spoken wrong, show me how. But if I have spoken, and note the word, rightly, why do you strike me? What happens? What's the big difference here? Jesus spoke rightly. Jesus spoke righteously. He always did. Jesus is the Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Jesus never did. He never spoke a harsh word. He never spoke an unkind word. He never spoke. uh, He never cussed. He never cursed. He never went off on anybody unless it was absolutely righteous. There are a few times he went off. Absolutely right. 100% righteous. Completely right on. Spot on. The words of his mouth. Get this. The words of his mouth always came out clean. So he never had to get the cleansing of confession. 
We can confess and be cleansed. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful. Jesus never had to confess because He never spoke anything that was not right. How is that even possible? It's possible because His heart was pure. Jesus was the epitome of pure in heart. And it was Jesus who told us, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So we can, in our condition in Christ Jesus, we can wash our mouths with the pure soap of confession. But better than that, better than washing our mouths or watching our mouths, we can watch our hearts with the purification of Christ. And this is profound to me. Then it's not about watching my mouth, which is not something I can do. And I'll tell you what, if it's coming out of your mouth, it's too late. Watch your mouth. Doesn't matter. I can watch my mouth all day long. I'm still going to have stuff coming out of my mouth. I wish wasn't. Because of what I put in my body. Because of what I take into my heart. It's what my heart meditates on. It's what my heart thinks about. It's what my heart takes in. I've told you all before, do you realize the reason we put the emphasis on the Word of God at the Bridge Fellowship and teaching the Bible through page after page is not just so we can be bright. It's not just so that we can give answer. It's not so we can refute wrong teaching, and and, and that's fine. It's so that our hearts can be constantly washed pure with the water and the Word. And hearts washed pure, the more pure the heart, the less likely anything impure is going to come flying out of your mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is the work in the condition of the follower of Jesus. This is the work that's taking place right now. He is working on purifying my heart, purifying your heart. At the same time, I'm confessing because I don't want any of that stuff residual. I want to be clean. And I know I'm struggling with this impurity. And so He's sanctifying me and and I am looking for washing of my mouth, confessing, keeping it all clear and open, walking in the light before the Lord. And it is a powerful one-two punch of the Holy Spirit. Don't just watch your mouth. Watch your heart. In this culture, watch your heart. What are you taking in? What are we listening to? What am I reading? What do my ears hear, my eyes see? How am I filling my heart? And to my mind, an hour, hour and a half of teaching on Wednesday night is an hour and a half of some of the best time you can possibly spend during the week because you're filling up your heart with something that's clean and pure and holy. And I get it. Most of what we see in here the rest of the week is not. Jesus doesn't say watch your mouth. He invites us to confess, but He says watch your heart. Watch your heart. And that's why the psalmist, Psalm 19.14, said these words, Let the words of my mouth... And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Confession will cleanse your mouth. The word of God, the spirit of Christ will cleanse your heart.